When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You need to answer your phone because I don't know who Neil Johnson, Washington is or whatever. I don't know who you are. You need to call back. Hey, what's up, Geekscape? We have... Let me do that again. Hey, what's up, Geekscapists? We've got EK Boys director Eric McKeever coming up on the show. We're going to be talking Farscape, obviously, because it's what we named Geekscape after. We're going to be talking about his brand new indie movie, EK Boys, and all of the amazing, amazing uh, references and influences that make up the movie. Everything from Sentai shows to kaiju movies to a ton more. I mean, there's actually a movie that I was thinking of watching this film that it inspired me that I was like, Oh, this had to be inspired uh, by this kind of genre. And it's not necessarily something I'm trying to recall. It. It's not necessarily something that uh, was in uh, the movie. I'm just like, I'm getting a little bit of sense of this. Uh, it's an interesting movie. It has a ton of charm. I can't wait for the geeks gave us to discover it. it, but you know what? Let's just throw you an episode and then we can get down to it, all right? This is Geekscape. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, Geekscapists? I'm Jonathan, and it's time to start the show. Uh, I've been doing those little pre-rolls before the show, uh, last two or three episodes. Let me know if they're working for you. I just like the sense that when somebody downloads the show, they get a little sense of like, wait, what is this uh, show about? And they hear that before they just get thrown into that theme song. Um, But you know what? The theme song does say we're going to be doing a little bit of movies, video games, and comics, and TV, and all that stuff. So if you're not into that stuff, just turn it off now because this has been the pop culture podcast we've been giving you almost every week for like 15 years. So this is Geekscape. I'm your host. Hi, how you doing? If you look up one day and I'm not hosting the show, it's because Matt Kelly has successfully taken over Geekscape completely. And I'm either dead somewhere or almost dead somewhere. So call the police. That being said, we have a pretty damn good episode coming up for y'all. Um, my good buddy Eric McKeever is on the show. He's got this movie, EK Boys. We got to talk about distribution. I watched the movie. It just premiered at Fantastic Fest back in Austin. I say back in Austin because it's my hometown. I can say back in Austin because I spent half my life there. Um, I'm sure the crowd loved it because I loved this movie. This is a movie I want the Geekscapists to know. I want the Geekscapists to champion it. I want this to be your movie. I loved it. It is so freaking charming. And I've got the director and co-writer here uh, to talk to me about it. Um, he did an interview on the Horror Movie Night feed with Matt, who did some coverage on Fantastic Fest. There's a short interview with him and the cast up on that uh, feed right now, if y'all are Horror Movie Night subscribers. But I got Eric for an hour, so we're going to use it with no delay right here, Geekscapist. There's Eric, director of EK Boys, which I freaking love, dude. I love this movie. Thank you so much. Uh, Well, that means the world to me. Um, You know, it's going to sound corny, but I really have poured my heart and soul into this thing. And I'm just, you know, I'm I'm really delighted that 
my heart and soul seems to be resonating with other people's hearts and souls because that was, uh, uh, you know, they say specificity is universal. And I, you know, my really my cherished ambition for this film is that it's it is a film that people will turn to when they've had an awful day and they need to pick me up. And I thought, okay, well, if I really, you know, and then it's like, yeah, I'm watching EK Boys. And then an hour and a half later, you feel better about your life. And my thinking was, well, I can really only earn the right of, you know, having an audience member trust me with their moment of vulnerability if I am vulnerable with them. And so I'm just going to be, you know, as honest and sincere as possible about what I believe and, you know, what I feel and uh, what I think matters in life. Um, so I'm just, I'm really delighted that that's resonating with people. I just love that you weren't acting cool when you made this movie. I mean, do, do you know what I'm saying though? Like I say it, yeah. but as I'm watching this movie, um, it is not, you are completely unapologetic about how big of a nerd you are, which is yeah. so, I mean, that's what we celebrate here. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the people who fake it, right? Like, you know, I mean, I'm not, we're, let's not name names, but you know, when, when people give the cool reference or talk about the hip hop pop culture thing in their movie, and it just does not resonate on a sincere level. And I think as geeks, we have a, a barometer for that because we grew up and when we got it wrong, we got our heads dented in. <laughs> like we trusted yeah. the wrong people. And, you know, it was like the people who said they liked it, but they weren't all into it. And I, I'm not talking about gatekeeping here. Yeah, I'm talking, yeah. I'm talking about just a sincere love and unapologetic love for the material don't have to be an excellent like expert on everything you don't have to be completely all in on the smallest minutiae of the property yeah. i'm not talking about obsession i'm just talking about love i think well i really appreciate you saying that because that i mean that really speaks to what i was trying to do i mean i, I there was a there were a couple of moments early on in the process where i thought okay well I, there's a couple of ways i could make this film there's one way i could make it where it's cute, it's jokey, it's ironic, and it sort of plays into what a lot of people think that this stuff is about. Or I could do the version that I really believe in, which is the version from my heart and which is a version about the actual reality that I lived, which was a, really escaping into these stories um, as a means of coping with and better understanding life. And, you know, thing, there's a lot of stuff in, in anime, in tokusatsu that, objectively it's ridiculous and it's bonkers but you don't watch it ironically you don't watch it to make fun of it you watch it to enter into this heightened world and then when you engage with it on that level it's really like it's it's like it's mythological stuff it's about good and evil it's about you know it's about understanding the like primal forces behind life and you know that's frankly that's what growing up is about like uh, I, I, anyone who says that like childhood is this innocent, magical time are is full of it. Childhood is cruel and tough and hard. And like these things are ways of helping process how difficult the world is. So it was really important for me to be sincere and honest because I, that's what life is. And, and anyone who tells the other is fooling themselves. I, I just read the funniest conversation about how, Pixar is so in, like involved in death and the characters dying. And yeah. we see that in recent movies like Coco, but I think that stuff is absolutely present in Woody's predicament of being the forgotten toy for yeah. Andy. Yeah. And somebody wrote the X in Pixar stands for existential crisis. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, absolutely. And, and, and those are things that it, I remember watching the explorers, Joe Dante's the Explorers yeah. as a kid and thinking, it, you know, these kids built this spaceship in their backyard. If y'all haven't seen the Explorers Geekscape, you're probably younger than the host of the Geekscape podcast, but it's fine. I'll yeah. bring you along. Um, I just remember thinking as they make this spaceship out of like, I don't know, what was it? Like a, a washer dryer and all this stuff. And you get Ethan Hawke and these characters go up in the, the spaceship. And that's what the movie is. They meet aliens. I just kept thinking, if anything goes wrong, they can't breathe. If anything, if anything goes wrong, they're going to instant. And I just, I just remember what you know you, that little round spaceship, watch, watching it float into space. Yeah. And my thought was, wherever they go, I hope they're okay and I hope they're safe because death is just on the other side of that yeah. dishwasher yeah. door or whatever the heck they use to build their spaceship. And I always think that's present. And I think we learned that when Artax sinks into the swamp of 
uh whatever matt matt's gonna matt's yelling right now listen to the podcast matt kelly uh because he's like it's the swamp of sadness or whatever it is but we i think those things have to be present in a in a yeah in a movie about a fantasy mm-hmm. to understand the relatability and you, there's many tools that you borrowed from the language of anime manga uh, from all sorts of films. Um, and as I'm watching them, I'm just loving the references and I love the opening of your movie and I love the animations of the movie. Uh, Geeks gave us this movie. EK boys is about two kids growing up in Oklahoma. They're mad anime manga fans. It has completely isolated them from the social fabric of their high school. Um, and one day a foreign exchange student shows up and she's from Japan and this and is days, is she, which is also a big deal. Yeah, and th- and this is days within uh, the turn of the century in, in Y2K crisis. This takes place days before the end of the year in 1999, and I remember where I was at that moment. And um, and what I love about it is you start with this on black grim. We've seen this in a million movies, uh, you know, in 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 whether it's anime or j- Japanese films, and you just hear the. In Japanese, the, the story of this prophecy that come the turn of the century, these old gods are going to rise from the earth and reclaim the planet as theirs. And the only thing that they've been sealed away, but the prophecy says they may be unchained and returned. And we're like, oh, that's cool. Um, Eric's going to deal with a metaphor for these kids to deal with. And it's going to be a John Hughes-like fun movie with a little bit of Napoleon Dynamite elements to it. And we're going to see how these kids deal with this metaphor. No, Jonathan is not. He's this literally the old gods are going to return. And these two kids in this foreign exchange student living in Oklahoma have to deal with the freaking old gods. And there will be kaiju and there will be freaking. Uh, no, everything you thought was a fantasy precursor to the set you up for the film and introduce you to the language of this film isn't just metaphor buddy they're gonna by the end of this movie you are going to see see some stuff and it's awesome and i love again that you didn't just tell us the metaphor of these things you made us sit with it and then experience it and you weren't shy with you weren't hinting at the language you were using the language you were celebrating the language and geeks gave us as i said in my intro EK Boys is a movie I want you to celebrate, and not just if you're an anime or manga fan. This is just a good coming of age story, which I think most of our content that we like here on the show and in this community is Spider-Man coming of age, Batman dealing with social responsibility, Superman dealing with integrating himself into a society and a cause that's not his. Uh, you know, these are all things that we love in these stories, and your movie does it very, very well and very sincerely, my friend. Eric, well, that, means, that means the world to me. Um, you know, I, I was I, blown I, away, buddy. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, I, I thank you. Um, it's because that is absolutely what I set out to do, and I think it, you know, what you're saying, it, it speaks to the fact that I like I wanted to treat. You know, I wanted to treat the sort of the kitchen table drama of the kids' lives with the same sincerity that I treated the actual literal end of the world. And, <laughs> you know, and it's, I really think that the things that we go through as kids and so like the cruelties that we experience as kids, like, you know, anyone who says that childhood is this innocent, magical time is full of it. It's like childhood is hard and like there's like, you know, you're aware of death early and you're aware of like the hard things early. And I think it, but the really like who we are as children and our like most pure selves, that is like, that is the key that lets us take care. Like it lets us tackle the big difficult things. And, you know, at the end when they literally do do battle with the old gods, you know, not to give away anything, but yeah, let's not spoil it. I love the I love the surprises of this. Like, are they going here? Yeah, they're going there. Yeah, uh, but, but the secret is, you know, the, the secret that saves the day is, the, you know, the the really their purest, most innocent, actual selves. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that was I, I. I don't think any of the elements in the film, from my perspective, like it's not a jumbled mishmash of things. Like it's no, no accident that like a sweet little high school movie and an apocalyptic movie are the same movie. It's like because this stuff, it's like. 
it's two sides of the same coin, like the sweet stuff and the really horrific stuff. It's like the, the sweet stuff is what enables you to deal with the horrific stuff. Um, and yeah, at least in my head, it's all, you know, it, it's all interconnected. Uh, and I'm delighted that she seemed to have the same reaction. Well, Eric, you know, um, when Katrina sent me the solicitation to have you on the show or in a, in to cover this movie, I was like, okay, let's see. Cause sometimes, and I, and I love the films that we've covered on Geekscape, but sometimes the indie budget yeah. will completely keep you from, from, you know, it's like you'll watch the movie and be like, ah, I see what he's going for, but the budget didn't really get him there. And honestly, you're shooting this film in Oklahoma. Oklahoma's pretty good tax incentives right now. And so you're, you're working on the, in this indie film in Oklahoma. Um, but even with the tax incentives Oklahoma's got going for it, you still got to fight and scrape for everything at an indie level. I kind of know from my relationship with Brian Hamble, one of your producers, like kind of the budget range of the film. And I'm like, how's he going to pull this off? Like if he actually wants to go all in on this old God stuff and the Kaiju stuff, in the special effects stuff, how's he going to do this without seeing the seams? Right. And that's really where like the shortcoming of a lot of these indie movies are like, you see the seams. There are places in the movie where you do see the seams, but what's great about it is you have taken on the language of Toho. You've taken on the language of some of these Kaiju and Sentai films and the seams are what you celebrate. And it's like, no, no, the seams are the language and you don't even see them by the time you get to that film, uh, that part of the film, because you're already involved with the teen story, the John Hughes of it all. And then you get to this part and you're like, hey, not only did I get a John Hughes movie here, I got myself a fun Power Rangers, Gamerai, Gamera, Super Sentai. I'm going to say Diamagen because I saw like a lot oh. of the Diamagen design in that stuff. That was most definitely something discussed uh, with my concept artist. Oh, yeah. very much. Very. Does very Geekscape much. get points in your book? Does Geekscape get points? <laughs> so many points already. <laughs> I have all three damage and movies still on VHS. And what's cool is oh. when you put the the, the VHS yeah. tapes together, they create the statue on the side on the on the spines. But um, I mean, I saw the damage in design at the uh, you know at the end of the film. You can't deny that. And I was like, oh yeah, I I know you, Eric. We know each other. You mean we same? Um, how, what? Listen, as a director, director, like what scared you, dude, about knowing that you've okay? You're you're gonna start shooting the movie. Sure, you're doing good with like the practical aspects, the drama, the this and that. You have a background as an animator. Yeah. At this point, where you start having people believe in you, is your biggest production. You start having actors, crew members turn to you and say, "How are we doing this again?" What tools did you use? Both like maybe practical previous tools, mm-hmm. or like just director cap of the ship, yeah. let's go tools to convince them or let them see some of what you were going to make because, like, you're sitting there with like tape and string and bubble gum being like no no guys this is gonna work and it's your big ending or it's your big sequence sure and there's a lot of effects how did you what tools did you use well uh it's preparation 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 sure um, and it's a lot of communication um so i would say one thing that was really an ace in the hole early on is i connected with a wonderful concept artist uh, in tokyo named sean bricknell and so sean did all of the designs for the characters and Early, like early, just even at the fundraising stage, we put together a lookbook of about a dozen images that showed basically it was like it was the children's picture book version of the story. And I think if I showed it to you now, you'd be like you'd be both surprised and delighted to see like how much of a one to one it is to the finished film, like down to the color choices, down to like this particular gray in the winter sky or like the particular, you know, like the the thickness of the lightning in the old gods. Sure. But and, you're using that process, not just to yeah. create fundraising tools. You're using that process as part of your previs and some of the educational materials towards yourself for figuring out like, how do I want this? How do I want that? So oh, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's, it's making the film before I make the film. Um, sure. So, so that was, that was one thing where just on a visual level, it was saying like, you know, this is a facsimile of what the film will become. Um, there's some, you know, there's certain kind of, I, I would call them spiritual tricks 
that I did, uh, you know, with the cast to like the cast and crew, just to get everyone on the same wavelength. I, um, I put together about a, a 90 minute playlist of music that I, I listened to it like probably a couple hundred times over the course of production, just to keep myself tapped into emotionally what I was getting at with the film. And, you know, I shared that with the cast and all the, the key crew and just like the emotional journey that you go on listening to this playlist of mostly classical music. It's um, really important. Yeah. Uh, is, you know, this is, this is the experience you will have seeing the film. Um, you know, we talked about reference films. Uh, the Cornetto trilogy came up in conversations a lot. Um, and, you know, that was a real touchstone because that's another one where the humor, the genre elements, and the real human pathos all intimately combine and feed into one another. And it was like, that is, you know, that is what I want to achieve here. So I know that was very helpful for the cast. Um, one thing I, I really tried to make sure that every like everyone knew what everyone else was doing um partially just because it was fun like i tried to make sure the actor like i uh the actors that i could you know i'd have them come on to set when we were doing stuff with the suits and i tried to like make sure that the suit actors saw like saw the actual child actors so that they knew what was going on there and you know really, and those are stuntmen yeah they, they were um yeah wonderful stuntmen but you know i wanted them to understand no you're playing the same characters uh you're not i don't want you just like doing cool things in these cool outfits. I want you, you know, to embody what happens when you put these kids in these new strange bodies. Um, you know, yeah. I, there's I, a, there's I, a level of familiarization that they need to familiarize themselves, but at the same time, they have to fall back on the gait, the mannerism, the weight that they're treating their bodies in the comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they had to uh, observe, know, so they had to observe your actors for a stretch too. They did. They, they did. Yeah. Um, and um, well, this is where you know it did. Preparation is uh, was really you know. So my actual lead actors, they came to you know they, they were on set a couple of weeks before filming started. So we had time to rehearse, uh, like at the school we filmed, and I like I showed them the places I grew up. And what was really fun is um, uh, Ronick and Quinn arrived first, so they had some time to bond together, and then. I had them pick up uh, Christina, who plays Miki from the airport, and uh, I, I just to kind of get them all in the same headspace. I had Christina is actually very fluent in English, but I had to, her to pretend to basically be Miki, like only mm -hmm. speak a very baseline level of English. And for about the first week, that was the prank we played on. Played on <laughs> uh, and you know, it, it was of course it was ridiculous, and I think caused some frayed nerves. But it really. It, it the of course the really funny thing about that besides you know besides getting everyone into character as it were was it when you do that it's it's funny how people like naturally like become more empathetic and they're like oh I hope she's okay and like oh we can and so it, it like it really triggered it, it triggered a sense of community and a sense of like oh no we really need to help one another out here right um, so yeah so there's a lot of little things like that that i did just to try to create a sense of you know of shared purpose and shared community um but yeah i mean post-production was was a long complicated process and um it's interesting because words like you know vision and artistry and story and craft don't get me wrong those are the most important things those are the most important things uh it's not a very sexy word, but infrastructure is damn important. And uh, we'd had a limited infrastructure on this. Um, so, you know, because like for a Pixar film, there's pipelines and there's sure. R&D and there's, you know, division, like division managers and all these things. And a lot of it at this budget level, what it fell down to was me having the film tattooed on my brain. So I, can, yeah. you know, of the 525 shots that required CG enhancements, how they all fit in and like what level of green went in this shot and what level of purple went in this shot. Um, so it was a lot of, it was a lot of communicating and I'd be lying if I told you that it was easy, but it, I mean, it, it's my job to know exactly what the film is supposed to be in the end. So I, you know, my ace in the hole is that I spend so much time beforehand preparing it and thinking about it and, writing up what it would be so that when the time came to operate with all these people, I could, I could tell each, like each group of people what they would be doing, but also I tried as much as I could. And I really wish I could have done even more of this to 
like, and this is, this is tough because like the animation uh, teams, like one was in France, one was in Taiwan. Wow. And, then, and you have full fledged anime sequences yeah. going on in this thing. And I think it's awesome. My buddy, Adam Mortimer just did this movie. We had it on Geekscape for Joe Manchinello is in this and he has animated sequences showing the beginning and the end. Mm. And they feel like I love Adam. I think the movie's really good, um, but some of it feels like animatic more than animation. Yeah, and 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 at every point, I I was like, Eric's got this plate spinning, and it's a really tough plate to keep spinning all this stuff. This stuff's gonna fall into animatics pretty soon. Mm-hmm. You know when a movie does that, right? Like, yeah, it's absolutely. just like whether yeah. it's deadline, budget, manpower, infrastructure, like you said. Like sometimes the animated sequences just turn into animatic. Yeah, and there's not the fluidity that we, I mean, anime is, is not CGI heavy. Traditionally, the stuff that you're drawing from the 1960s, 1970s stuff, mm-hmm. that stuff is cell. Like that stuff is Miyazaki stuff. Like that is stuff yeah. is, is yeah. Robotech. Like that stuff was yeah. frame by frame, cell by cell, like drawn. And I was like, at any point, Eric's, Eric's got to do it. Like, come on, this is an indie movie. He's going to fall into animatics. You didn't, you didn't. You fell into probably aging yourself by 30 years. <laughs> I, uh, I, threw out, I threw out my back twice. Uh, once my upper back, once my lower back uh, from uh, a year of, of, of hunching over my laptop uh, doing it. So a- animation did, in fact, age me by 30 years. Dude, I was blown away by the fact that you didn't fall into animatics on some of those sequences and just be like, well, you'll get the story. This is what it is. I mean, no fault to any of those filmmakers. But in a movie that has to integrate animated pieces, sometimes you're like, hey, you know what? The live action is going to carry most of this. The animatics just have to carry exposition. Yeah. You actually made them expressive and you made them extensions of the live action. And in many ways you integrated them. Like I have to see the sequel. Like this, I have to see this movie celebrated by you geekscapists who are listening to this. We just started broadcasting on Twitter as well. So welcome Twitter viewers. Um, and I need y'all to celebrate this movie so we can get Eric the sequel that I know he wrote. There, there is indeed he, a very specific sequel idea in the works. Yeah, yeah. I know. I can tell. It, <laughs> and it's it, awesome. It, it takes it in a very different, but I think uh, it's not the direction you think it's going, but once you see it go there, it'll be like, oh, of course that's the direction it will go. I love it. I think that the Raid 2... It's like that kind of thing where like the first Raid and the Raid, Raid 2, they, they, those two, two yeah. movies feel like, they both feel like action movies, but they're in completely different genres. They have completely different pacing, tone, and structure that I thought it was so brave. Nothing against the, like, the, what's the Keanu Reeves one, the John Wick John stuff, Wick. But, yeah. but I love the John Wick movies. There's a level of structure, tone, and, and similarity between all three movies. There's just similarity between all three movies where I'm like, it's a different Looney Tunes cartoon. Like they've they, like replaced John Wick with the railroad with the with the coyote, and I think you got yourself a movie. Like it feels like I mean I mean honestly like yeah. when I, I that's why I love the John Wick movies. I'm like oh it's the coyote, and he's just getting himself smacked around the whole movie, and he's doing some smacking. Well, but it's it's, a, it's cinematic comfort food, which total is, is wonderful. And by the way really hard to make absolutely i have nothing and i loved nobody the one with odin kirk where they did it and no nothing but respect my worry with those movies is how how much do you escalate those sequences and like at what point do you that's what the most impressive thing is like how do they keep this thing go it's like watching a juggling axe continue to mature it's like okay what's next he's gonna have axes then he's gonna have flaming axes then the axes are gonna be chainsaws like you're watching this thing extend the point I'm making is I think it's it's also brave to say, hey, we're not going to extend this thing. We're going to change the DNA of it to something else and see if we don't shake our audience. And that's really scary. And what you're saying and proposing with this sequel is we're going to change about half the DNA. The familiarity will lead you here. And then we're going to take you to places you are not familiar with. And I think that's more exciting to you as a filmmaker, is it not? Oh, it is. And I, I'm delighted that you like, uh, I mean, you, you, you figured out exactly what I have in mind. I mean, I think that the raid two is an excellent example in that like the, uh, if you look at EK boys closely, you can get the clues for where the sequel will go. Um, but it's like, there's so much in this film that hints at a wider world and mm-hmm. 
the sequel goes into that wider world. Let me put it that way. I love that you, you know what? We fell into those references. I just recalled when you're saying, I think 2011, I did a brief. I think the director of the Raid movies was on this podcast remotely. Briefly. I think we only had like 15, 20 minutes with them. And then Simon Pegg of, of the Cornetto trilogy obviously was on for a full episode and was in our film, Doc of the Dead, our documentary. So sure. you, you have two references that are very, that are Geekscape related. And now well, you're here. Yes, I mean, uh, well, first of all, like I said, the Cornetto trilogy was very much my my Bible in terms of tone and craft and like how to make the kind of film I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll say for um, the Ray director, uh, I was really lucky. He did a master class uh, at my film school at NYU. And what a boy, what a sweet. Uh, he was great. Sweet, gentle, but also like it, the things I was talking about earlier about knowing the entire film in advance so that I could be communicating that with everyone. Like that was like, he, he was definitely one of the mentors I learned that from because he's a social, he, he's psycho. Yeah. He shot the whole movie once on yeah. mini DV, cut it and then shot the whole thing again. Like the, the raid that you watch is the second raid that he shot. Yeah. And when, yeah. when he was telling me about that, I was like, oh, you gotta be kidding me, dude, the work he went in, but you know what? You don't put that work in. People get hurt. You don't want to put that work in. People get, you know, you, yeah. you lose your days, yeah. Especially with the, the number of shots he had to do, yeah. The raid has a ton of shots. Like you got to know exactly where you're going to put the camera on every one and what's going to be in front of it. This this piece right here, you were talking earlier about. We were talking a bit about you know the dichotomy between uh, the youthful innocence and a bit of the gravity of what's surrounding. And I think what you were leading to, and I'm going to go ahead and bastardize it in some version, is the idea that when things do happen, kids are resilient. And kids are resilient maybe at a level of, I don't want to say, it's going to have negative connotation. I don't really, it's like a level of naivety or freshness with the world. Fresh where, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like, okay, you get, like as a kid, if something bad happens, it has not yet become routine mm-hmm. to the level of, defeat and it's always going to be this way and so a kid has a level of resilience and positivity coming out of grief or coming out of trauma did you experience any of that as a kid eric oh absolutely um uh and i think we all had it in in some form or fashion um so i think one specific story i can tell is you know there's a there's tornado elementary in this film and actually there's a, a weather caster of cameos in here his name's gary england and he's a he's an oklahoma legend and, it's, um, and stay through the credits you'll see a little bit more legend uh, at the end of the credits yeah boy will you ever um <laughs> and uh i am alive today because of gary england um when i was 12 um there were bad thunderstorms in the area and I turned the TV and he had, you know, he said there was a tornado that just touched down a few blocks from my house. And I went into the shelter beneath the closet just in time. And, you know, I mean, really just in time. And uh, the house around me got all torn up, but I was safe in the shelter. So I nearly died age 12 and he saved my life. And it's part of the reason why, you know, he has a cameo in the film is because it's, you know, it's my, uh, long delayed payback uh, to, you know, my, my gratitude towards him. Um, but it speaks to a deeper issue of it. I realized pretty young that death was going to come for me at some point. And I don't have any, you know, th- there's no guarantee of what measure of life that I have. And mm-hmm. so I better, like, I had better do things that Matt, like I, I had better leave a meaningful life because I don't know how long my life will be. And I'd better mm-hmm. do the things that Matt, that I think matter. And I think I am put on earth to do, I better be doing them now. I shouldn't put them off. And I realized that I realized that very young. And I think it, it put a kind of a preternational awareness of my own mortality into my brain um, at a pretty young age. But the weird side effect of that is that it, I wouldn't say it like sobered me up or made me grow up, but it, it, it codified some of that like little boyishness forever. It was like, Oh no, like these are the important things. So I am going to, I'm not going to get uh, sucked away by what the world tells me is actually important. sucked away. That's the choice of words you want to use. 
<laughs> well, I don't know. It's distracted, or you know, a lot of it's like I think, like a, like a tornado sucking you away. Is that, is that what you wanted to say? <laughs> well, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's a Freudian slip right there. Um, <laughs> it's you know, I I do believe from personal, we come out pre-baked. We are who we are, um, and you know, so I'm an only child, but I went to. Mm -hmm. The school we filmed at, I went to a school with the same group of about 80 classmates, you know, from kindergarten through high school. And it's striking how, like, the basic personalities of everyone in that class, they did not change. We just, and the fact that, like, I don't know, like, the fact that I'm on this podcast right now, I'm sure would not surprise my classmates. Uh, you know, it's like, and, and each of them, like, the things they've done with their lives, you could have predicted some variant of it from kindergarten. Um, and so I think as we get older, we add on more layers and life gets more complicated, but the really fundamental truths are set from an early stage. And so I think in many ways, the secret to a good life is, well, you know, I got advice um, from a directing mentor in Japan a, few, uh, a number of years ago. And it's like this 80 year old directing guru. And he said, try to stay in touch with the reason why you first wanted to do it. Like okay. keep, like keep tapped into the initial thing that motivated you. And for you it was? Uh, with dinosaurs. It was dinosaurs? Yeah, no, uh, cause it's, it's actually a straight line from uh, dinosaurs to Godzilla. To absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. I, um, I see that completely. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know, like life is too short to feel shame about still being in my dinosaur phase. So, you know, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, listen, yeah. I, I mean, you're on Geekscape. Clearly Jonathan <laughs> did not have, <laughs> but, but that, but that night, was that the night, the tornado night? Was that the night where you were like, okay, everything from here out is go. Um, I think so. Or was there, were there other events? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because I think it, 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 it was a series. I don't think you can boil it down to one night. That That is one that's easy to, that one's easy to point to because it's so dramatic. Sure. It can be a lightning rod of, of yeah. those things, but, but how you acted before yeah. then and after then, or a little bit of a splinter from that moment. Yeah. Well, you know, but I, I would did that about a year after that was when I wrote my first screenplay. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so the point was when I was 12 uh, a year later when I was 13, that was when I wrote my first screenplay and with a moment of, you know, of, of grave 13-year-old solemnity declared that I've decided that I no longer want to be a paleontologist. I'm going to be a film director. It's and, a Okay, go ahead. And then I'll and, give you my thought. And um, and I stuck with that. Although, uh, I, as I was saying a minute ago, dinosaurs haven't gone anywhere. Um <laughs> And, you know, I stuck with it, but there, there are a lot of little things. I mean, so uh, after the screenplay, 14, 15, that's when I started doing little animations. Sure. And I screened those at a middle school talent show. And, of course, I, you know, shy, awkward, gangly kid, uh, girl, you know, I, I didn't think girls liked me. Um, and then I screened these films for a crowd and suddenly my classmates including the bullies were cheering and it's the greatest were, feeling in the world. It's why it we do like, what we do. And it was like, Oh wow. Like I can make other people happy. And, and so, you know, that was a transformative moment. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it was a, yeah, I mean, it was a continuation. It was a series of, of transformative moments. Um, but, but Eric, it's all paleontology. Oh yeah. Like, it's it's what I describe screenwriting as is like personal paleontology because you're going to start a story and be like oh there's going to be uh, Chewbacca's and the laser swords and the in the the spaceship battles and things like that but it's all going to come down to some kid in Bakersfield who just wants to get out of his crap town and race cars yeah you know what I mean and and you watch the the New Hope or Star Wars New Hope and you can't tell me that wasn't personal paleontology of Lucas trying to dig down to the core of his wants and needs as yeah. that kid growing up in Bakersfield wanting to get the F out of anywhere, but there, you know what I mean? And it's like, Oh, well that, I mean, that it's, is it's so all, it's all paleontology, Eric. You've always been a paleontology, a paleontologist brother. Well, this is, is you celebrating and pulling up. You are the old guy that you dug out of the, <laughs> I yeah. mean, but you think about that. Have you thought about your film in that level of like, 
Uh, so very much so. And I think this is the first time I'm going to reveal it publicly. Um, you know, I, I use music very careful. Like I, I, cur- mm-hmm. I curate my emotions through music and, um, I don't know, there's a piece of uh, a concert suite by Aaron Copeland. It's the Red Pony Suite. Um, it's one of his lesser-known works, but it's I, I listened to it the first time as a child and then again in high school. And it, for me anyway, it speaks to innocence and purity and sort of like the original spark in life and then how that interacts with, how that interacts with the world. And there's even a point in like in the final, the final piece of the Red Pony where it's like, it's celebratory and then it gets really, really dark and actually the music stops for a couple seconds. And then right after it stops, it like the strings come in and, you know, I'm going to, I'm starting to get goosebumps now, but they're like, they're, they're like, they're bright and they're pure and they come up and it's almost like, it's like light pushing back against the darkness and like a spring, like it's the spring coming back. Yeah, and yeah. I, and I, I, for years I curated very carefully when I listened to that because it was just so beautiful and just spoke to me so much. And I, and for EK Boys of the film, I decided I am, this is the film that I'm going to use the red pony as my reference point, because it's like, it, it helps, it, it helps with the paleontology. It's, yeah. It's, it's a barometer. It's like a lodestone. Like it, it recenters you immediately. It, no, it, yeah. it, it, it's like it immediately bores, it cuts through all the crap and bores down to what's really at, at the heart of this. Um, and so that, that was a constant tool in the process to not get too wrapped up in, to help me not get too wrapped up in like all of the layers of like, would this be cool? Would that be cool? Like, mm-hmm. okay, what is the compass point? This is the compass point. And if I'm looking for an answer to a question, follow that compass point. Um, yeah. so absolutely. I mean, and by the way, you talk about paleontology. My thesis film at film school is a love story about paleontology. <laughs> um, so, uh, paleonaut, it's on YouTube. So, I mean, you grew up in a place like, no offense, you grew up in a place where there ain't nothing to do but look at a bunch of dirt everywhere. So, like, what am I going to say, man? There's oh. nothing in Oklahoma. <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't, as a Texan in Austin, like being like, Oklahoma, smoke low. <laughs> you are so thoroughly speaking my language. As a kid, as a kid what are you going to do? You're going to dig. There's nothing around there. As a kid, I was bored out of my skull. And I, I literally, I remember thinking as a child, I want to get out of Oklahoma because nothing of significance happens in Oklahoma. Yeah. I want to go to Tokyo where actual meaningful things happen. And yeah, and Tokyo is great. Tokyo, I mean, it's my second home. I love Tokyo. I love Japan. Um, but I also discovered a lot of people there who thought that Oklahoma was this cool, exotic place. Isn't and that so, crazy? You know, in retrospect, and this is, you know, this is a big fat thank you to my parents. Um, but I'm so grateful that I had a boring childhood because a boring childhood equals a childhood where your imagination wanders and you have the freedom to dream of what life might hold. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, it, it's funny. I think um, uh, growing up in a place that is no place that seems like nowhere where you seem like nobody is just about the greatest gift you can give to a person if you want to motivate them to get things done. And you had no siblings, but this film has a friendship in it, a brother-like friendship in it between these two main characters. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think in a, an extent, like you did end up appreciating the friends that you had um, because that was special. You, 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 didn't, you know, I, I lived with two brothers and the escapability of it was like futile i was like dude that's who you're hanging out with and you have you each have your own friends based on your age but like that is who you're hanging out with um and you are always hanging out and you do not get that much time to yourself so i mean there have been there were times when i was a kid my dad would think that i was that i had gone gotten kidnapped or been missing but Mm -hmm. i had really just been like falling asleep in the treehouse or under the bushes by the house because i just wanted to get to a place where I could be by myself with my thoughts. <laughs> and, yeah. and I, and, and little Jonathan wouldn't come out until he heard the fire sirens and looked up and the firemen or paramedics or police were there because they were going to search the neighborhood for Jonathan who had just fallen asleep with a comic book underneath, like <laughs> under, like underneath like the house where he had gone to just be by himself. Cause otherwise you got these two brothers trying to beat the shit out of him the whole time. <laughs> 
Well, for the, um, the, the friendship in EK Boys, it is very loosely based off of my, uh, my relationship with my best friend in high school. And uh, he's actually the one who I made my, my first feature with, mm-hmm. uh, a high school movie. But damn, am I proud of it as a high school movie. Um, and, you know, our friendship was so interesting because I think we both knew it at the time, but you know, we're still dear friends now. Um, but we realized as the years have gone on how much of our friendship stemmed from we were each looking to the other to fulfill a perceived inadequacy in ourselves. And as we grew over and matured, we realized, Oh no, wait, like we're actually good as we are. And like the friendship strengthened matured as we realized, no, like we're both good. Like you're talking about like being mirrors to each other. Yeah, I think so. Well, so, I mean, the outside looking in, I mean, so I, uh, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to be speaking out of school when I say anything here, but like, you know, I, I, I was intelligent, but introverted and shy and, and okay. awkward. And I looked to my friend because he was outgoing and cool and charismatic. Um, and women were into him. And I was like, I want to, you know, hitch myself to someone who has all those things. But in well, doing so, that. you would have been, uh, like a second version of that. And you yeah. learned the value of being, Hey, I'm over here. If you would like the other option. Yeah. I'm like right here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. Uh, But the, the immense irony of the situation was that I found like, I found out in retroactively that he admired me as the one who was sure in my own skin, didn't have anything to prove. uh, Didn't try that cool. And and I I didn't think of myself that way, but he did. And, and, and so I think there was a lot of, what was neat and empowering about the friendship is there was a lot of insecurity built into the origin of it. But then the deeper the friendship became that we sort of revealed those things to one another and talked each other out of our own insecurities. And the friendship really deepened because we realized, Oh no, like everyone is insecure and <laughs> we're all effed up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we can just, but so let's just be friends because we're equals. Isn't that the the conversation that people say? Like mainly, you get that that conversation when you're hanging out with people who are no good for you. But you are the average of the of the five people that you see the most. Yeah. But it, it's not so much like, hey, you hang out with a bunch of meth heads. They're going to teach you how to be a meth head. But it's ultimately the, the the people you hang out with. You choose them as reflections of yourself. But what you're saying in this story, and I think I'm thinking about it in my own life now that we talk about it. We do talk about Geekscape here on Geekscape. It's just sometimes it's not interesting to me. I like talking about storytellers and where they come from. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, we're not going to. Sorry, we're not talking about that thing you're going to forget about 10 minutes later. Um, it's the tool for understanding real life. So right. It really is all connected. So, so I, I think that your friends teach you how to celebrate yourself. Yeah. When you yes, do not yes. want to celebrate yourself. Yes. Because the yes. last thing you want to do growing up is sometimes celebrate yourself because you've been kicked around. And like your friends are the ones who are like, hey, dude, you're the reason I hang out with you. Yeah. Even if you don't see it, I see it. And when you get into relationships later on that are romantic or partnership relationships, yeah. you have to let go of your own BS in order to allow them to show you those things too. And that is really hard because then you get into an idea where maybe you resent them for actually you resent yourself but their reflection of their feelings for you creates oh this weird complex mistrust or resentment if that relationship is not right geeks gave us go to therapy anyway uh, (laughs) we're talking about anything but geek stuff right now but but i I don't know man yeah it's like okay we got a sandman trailer i like sandman enjoy it (laughs) all right but like i don't want to spend too much of my time talking about stuff that is you're just gonna you know what i mean like i love pop culture i do geeks gave us and we will talk about farscape but like well let me interject here that's the magic of that was the magic of making the thing i miss most um not being able to get back to japan because of covid is my friends there and the thing about making friends in another culture and another language is it really intensifies that process of forcing you to forcing you to get past the perceived exterior of a person and to the real reality of the person. Like the gift of being someone who, through a lot of hard work, has become very fluent in Japanese 
is that I've been able to engage with a wide swath of human beings in Japan, mm -hmm. different ages, different interests. And I'm not Japanese. I never will be Japanese, but like it's Japanese people are able to engage with me in a way they wouldn't a Japanese person. And it's been a real, it's been a tool for really empathetically connecting with just other people as other people. Because of the lack of familiarity? Um, because I mean, Does that make sense? Like their view of you is, well, um, um, there's no representative here. There's no, he's not putting on a front. There's no representative here because he doesn't even know, he's not equipped enough socially, culturally yet to have a representative, to fall into a niche, to fall into a group. There's some of that, um, you know, Japan is such a codified, um, like there's so many expectations put on people by Japanese society. Mm -hmm. And um, by the simple innate fact that I'm not a part of that society, I think on some subconscious fashion, people are, it's easier for people to be their true selves around me. Like, Do I, they dismiss I, I, you from those, from those requirements? Do they dismiss you from having to adhere to some of those constraints? I mean, it, I mean, it, I just, by looking at me, like it, it's almost a subconscious thing. It's like, I can speak the language and I understand the culture, but I look okay. different and I'm never going to be, you know, I'm never so it's like, we won't him. expect that of him. Like, Oh, he's different. We won't expect that of him. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've gotten into trouble a few times by trying to be too Japanese. And I've actually had the really close friends kind of call me out on it and be like, that's Stop just racist. That. Stop that's racist. That it makes me very uncomfortable. You're being very racist, Eric. You're being very racist. <laughs> We just don't know any better. It's like, ah, sorry. He's also from Oklahoma. Like, please. No, I'm kidding. There will be no. <laughs> so, Eric, like, um, dude, Eric, the, the thing is, like, we could talk for. When I, I talked to Matt Kelly after I heard your shorter interview with the cast on, on Horror Movie Night. And, and Geekscape is Seek It Out, too, because they do get into things like the Sentai movies or Sentai shows and things like that that are a little more. I mean, this is the language that this movie, EK Boys, that I want you all to celebrate, is about. Like, it, this is the language that it speaks. And I love this movie for its sincerity. But when I watch the movie, honestly, Eric, I'm watching this movie and, and I'm seeing all these beautiful things that we celebrate and all the pop culture stuff that you used to hang from the tree. But, but what I love the most is that there was a tree there. And it's not just ornament. or You know, it's like not just ornament. And you see that in these pop culture movies sometimes where it's like, you're going to put the pop culture references and you're going to, there's no tree to hang them from. Yeah. Yeah. And so what Geekscape is who are expecting us to talk about, you know, Kaiju or this and that, like, great. I love it. You know, you can find that. I'm sure Eric's done a lot of those interviews, but I want to talk about the tree and I want to talk about the filmmaking. I want to talk about those 180 degree jumps that you did. You ah. know what I'm talking about? You did it twice in two scenes in a row. And I was like, why do you do that? You know what I mean? When they're <laughs> first off, we got to talk about putting Ben Bowder in the movie and how much I love that you put Ben Bowder in a movie. I have a lot. Of we're huge Farscape fans, but that one scene where they're putting the bike in the truck mm -hmm. and you, you put your master there. And then when you go to the singles, you're on the other side of the line. And I was like, okay, cool. I, yeah. I, I, I'm down like one or two scenes later, masters on one side, other side of the line gives the singles. Yeah. Yeah. What, like production requirement, like design, like talk to me about that. I don't want to call you out if that's like not no, or whatever. Both of those scenes, honestly, it's um, so uh, when you do a French over um, it's uh, it, it, it's because there's something in the scene that is implies observation or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever being discussed being about something else. So the scene, the truck, they're just got so in the weeds filmmaker fans, like hope you came with us <laughs> yeah go ahead uh today i i think that's what they signed up for hopefully um yeah. welcome to geese the, the scene by the truck they're talking um uh the father and miki are talking about sean and so mm -hmm. it um so i you know it, it, i go behind them go into french overs because you know they are talking about someone else yes um also i mean the other thing is there there's if you frame it right, there's a sense of intimacy when it's done that way. And I really, I wanted to show. Like you've been sense. pulled into that relationship. Exactly. exactly. By not, by, because here's the thing. The master was established on one side of the truck and then you could just go to the, to keep the line, go into singles on that side of the truck, but you were still on that observational side of the fourth wall. Geekscape yeah. is, if you can, if you can see that you were still sharing it. And they did it in the last Ted Lasso episode. They were using French overs in this Ted Lasso episode for the last week. And I was like, why are they doing that? Oh, I got it. 
in your yeah the french overs pull you into being a participant mm -hmm. you are yeah. now jumping from the pov of the master which if you're sitting in a theater would be the seats that you've paid for and now you're on stage with the participants in the singles you don't go back to the master too much on that one or it breaks it yeah well it's not um, too flippy floppy yeah and, and you know and, and it it it's fine. You, you certainly have emotional access there, but you don't have as much emotional access. Sure. It's um, distance. Yeah. And, you and, did, and, you did it when, when, when he comes in with the, with, Hey, you guys talking about me? Da, da, da. Like you did it in two or three scenes later, you use that French over again. Do you recall? Uh, well, let's see. Are we talking about the scene in the office? Are we talking yes, about sir. the other? Uh, we're talking about the argument with because uh, you love that too. I was like, I got to ask him about these French overs because this is homies using them like three times. And I know he's not like, 180 but 180 like, i know you know what you're doing so like no, no, it, it talk to me about these french overs because i want to i want to learn some of this stuff because i love that's why i love having filmmakers on the show it, it really no what it really came down to uh, thank you for the question i mean it it really came down to it it's where do we want the audience to be and the scenes at the french overs it was i want the audience to be i want them whenever you're doing a French over, you are with the character you're seeing and you're with them thinking about something else and in both mm -hmm. of those scenes it's like I want to be right there with what they're thinking, what they're worried about, and subconsciously thinking about, like, just by the nature of looking over someone's shoulders and being right there with their face, you're thinking about what is just off screen that you're not seeing. Yes, and, I get the singles, yeah, for, yeah, but coming off of a jump, mm -hmm. and keep in mind, like, I, the first time I like, noticed it'd be like, Oh, cool! Was I think Tim Burton does it in the second Batman with Selena Kyle sitting on the on the in front of the fire with Bruce Wayne. I think they use the French over there. The first time I saw it, like twenty years ago, and being like, "Oh, that's a cool thing," um, because because otherwise you're like, "What the f?" Um, as a film nerd, you're like, "What the f?" People are like, "Oh, it doesn't bother me because they don't. They're not. They're not morons. Like, they're not film people like who are like <laughs> looking at every little thing." Were you worried about using them three times? That's my question. Were you worried about using French over street times in her film? And now the audience is like, what the F are they talking about? Talk about Kaiju. Uh, you know, and, and the honest answer is no, I, I wasn't. I mean, I, I take so many other objectively bigger risks in this film. Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, you and do. I, I like French overs. I, I, I like them. I think they work. And to be honest, I mean, it, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, it's funny now. Cause I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking back on the decision-making process for all of them. And, because sometimes really, you just get wrapped up in production. And you don't even see that you did it three times in a row. You know what I mean? Or you don't, or maybe there's scenes that were moved, or maybe there's scenes that were reformatted, not, and you're like, oh crap, they ended up next to each other. Well, it, it's funny because I, I think having this conversation with you, I, I'm realizing, yeah, in the middle of the film, there are three <laughs> scenes with French overs. And I, the middle of the film was where, like, that's where the characters are most kind of like they're reaching their lowest state and they're like ah. getting deeper into their inner journey. And I think. You know, I think that's where it came from. So I I think it emerged naturally because I was thinking this is where the audience needs to be at this moment in the film. It's like, don't worry, yeah. like big uh, bravoso stuff is right around the corner. But in order to earn that, we need to get really, really close right here. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. And I think as a filmmaker, like, I think, okay, so you, you talk about over planning. We talk about infrastructure. We talk about plan, plan, plan. I think at some time you only do that stuff to like 85, 90%. Mm -hmm. If that, and you just have to like let the movie find it too. And like, you just yeah. got to let the story get to you and like leave enough air in there that yeah. you didn't freaking totally squeeze out every bit of, um, I don't know, improvisation or collaboration that might come to you that might have a great idea. Like if you just over, I'm not telling you Geekscape is not to be disciplined. Don't overplan your stuff, yeah. but leave some room for discovery leaves some room for your instinct and emotion to come over i remember talking to gavin o'connor about that movie uh warrior that he did i like this yeah. movie like remember this movie it's tom hardy versus joel edgerton and they're like a strange brothers who end up like yeah, sure, me sure, meeting sure. Yeah. in like yeah. the title yeah. fight of a ufc and i remember asking him i was like you didn't think that was like totally like a little too easy that these two brothers end up like in the title fight of a ufc after being a strange and like a little too coincidental or like contrived and he goes no, I just wrote the movie. I wanted to write. Well, and I was like, "Yeah, snap!" And sometimes you just got to do that. It, so I'll tell you, I, I don't actually think they're contradictory. I think that preparation lets you play. Like, if okay, you prepare, you oh, have, right. if you if you if you're prepared, then you have the mental bandwidth to 
toss all of your preparation into the rubbish bin and do something way better. Oh, when stuff but, goes to shit too. Like sometimes you're, I remember having a PA who yeah. had all my greens on a truck and the greens are like your, your foliage. You sometimes to cover like the fact that you're shooting in Los Angeles. So you want to cover the skyline with foliage or a tree or a fake bush. And I was shooting in that direction for the sun, for the sunrise exteriors. And I remember the night before this PA with our truck, with all our greens on it had hit a car and been seen and didn't want to tell anybody in the production. He was embarrassed that the, the car got towed or the truck with all my greens got towed. Those greens didn't show up until noon. I'm supposed to do a sunrise shot pointed towards Los Angeles. And I have all the greens that are supposed to cover Los Angeles. They ain't showing up because truck got pulled. Nobody knew where this kid was. He was hiding. So immediately you start to start flipping, flopping your floor plans and shots to get other directions and stuff. I think it turned out better. I ended up shooting ninjas, like jumping into trees and stuff. Well, I, 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 have a personal, I have a personal mantra for filmmaking and for life, but certainly filmmaking, which is that every problem is an opportunity. And yes, that's that life. That's life, brother. I say that because there will be problems. Filmmaking is an entropy machine. And I, like, I don't say that in this like Pollyanna-ish, oh, good things are going to happen. No, horrible, bad things are going to happen. Yes, life sucks in a lot of ways. Um, so we've got a wonderful Japanese actress in the film, uh, Yumiko Shaku, and that her she is a marquee name actress, and she played and, Billy Zane's wife. Yeah, yeah, that may be one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever seen in my entire life. This she actress you're talking is about that beautiful on the inside too. She is just it's incredible a of a human being. Um, so uh, her visa got denied by the previous presidential administration, and the last minute scramble to appeal the application. And I mean, if you read the name of the end credits, the names in the special thanks closely, you will realize the number of outlandish favors that got called in. <laughs> oh no. And so, which speaks to my larger point of, we pulled it off and it was a gigantic catastrophe. Her visa got approved the morning of her flight, which we wow. rescheduled three times. I'm um, so, that's insane. That's really stressful. <laughs> It was well, and you know, and you're rolling weeks, by that time. Like she's showing up in production, right? The first two weeks of the shoot, I was it, it, it was I had to practice what I try to do regularly, which is exist in a quantum state of uh, having mm. tremendous stress and tremendous and worry, no control. Well, tr- yeah. coexisting with well, but isn't that filmmaking? It's like yes, yeah, yeah, that's life in filmmaking. You don't know when you're yeah. going to step off the wrong curb. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it boy, what an empowering experience to learn like the favors that I could call in. Um, yeah, it, there's look, there's so many. And filmmaking things. requires it. Filmmaking it, requires you to. I mean, everything requires it. Like, you, and if you're an island in this life, and we think about that emotionally, if you're so banged up that you become an island in this life, like, it's a really hard place to. to when you fall, nobody catches you, and and it's hard. Like, life can be really hard, and if you don't create friendships or you hurt friendships or ruin friendships, I've done both. Like when you fall, nobody catches you. I mean, I'll I'll tell you what, I hadn't seen Brian Hamble who produced, who worked for best medicine. Your one of your producers. Like I hadn't seen Brian Hamble in years. I hadn't talked to him since my divorce. He was at my wedding. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't talked to him since my divorce. I wrote when, when I heard you were coming on the show and I was working this out, like I wrote Brian and said, Hey man, your guy, Eric's coming on the show. Um, how's your company doing? How you doing? Like, we're going to meet up here in a week or so. You got to keep, you got to keep nurturing that garden of friendship because I definitely felt bad sending that email. I know I've been wrapped up in my own stuff since the divorce. You geekscapists have been witness to it, but I had to write that email and be like, Hey Brian, like, man, I hope you didn't take this personal that I kind of disappeared on a lot of people, but your guys coming on the script on the show. I'd love to get together. How can I help the movie? Da, da, da. <laughs> but well, they're really and i'm sure this is the knowing brian i'm sure this is the case here there were friendships that, that really matter they years can go by in between the intervals of friendship and it'll be like no time has passed at all and mm-hmm. knowing brian i'm absolutely sure that that's the he's case. awesome yeah. brian is awesome um matt kelly says i gotta go record a Horror movie night on one of the worst films I've ever seen, but I wanted to say this talk has been incredible. Oh, <laughs> Bolte <laughs> says, uh, this shot, the French over happened in big when Tom yes. Hanks kisses the lady at the dance and it marks the change when he says he wants to stay as an adult. Yes. And Katrina Wan says, please wrap up. 
you Man, only had just... Eric for an hour. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but I, I talked to Eric and I love him. And now he's probably going to come back to talk Farscape because we're homies. Just as we had that kind of like the, the comment about big, I remembered another shot where the perspective changes that I want to talk about. And yes, Ben Browder is salt of the earth. He is the best thing that like you would ever want in your life. So uh, we need to do a sequel. Well, well, let's get you back on Geekscape, buddy. Let's exchange something on socials or something. I'll find you there. Um, and we'll get you back on Geekscape. Um, Geekscape is, um, where can we find the movie? Where can we actually, where can we follow you on social? So we know when the movie's getting released. Congrats on the big fantastic fest I'm premiere. Uh, I'm on uh, Instagram at, at Eric McKeever. It's my name, E-R-I-C-M-C-E-V-E-R. Um, and, uh, a lot of things are in the works right now. Uh, there will be more about more festivals, more release soon. So TBA. Okay. Geekscape yeah. is you can follow us on all the Geekscape socials. Just search for Geekscape. You'll find us. We will clearly be champing in this movie when it's available to you all for VOD or however you can watch this movie and collect the collectible action figures from the film. I just made that up. I hope you make them. Go ahead and make them, Eric, please. I want uh, all the merch. <laughs> Geekscape is thank you for watching. We're available on a bunch of stuff. Again, search Geekscape. You'll find us and you'll hear us again next week. Tell your friends to subscribe and all that. Peace, everybody. See you next week. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.